familiar book of Matthew. I would assume that almost all of you have read this book and are fairly familiar with this book. Now, this is a book written to connect, in a sense, the Old Testament with the New Testament. It's written by Matthew, addressing particularly his audience was the Jewish believers. The first batch of believers were Jews in Jerusalem. And he was writing this with them in mind. Now I want you to realize that when the writers of the Bible, the 40 authors wrote, they had no idea that what they wrote was going to end up in this thing called the Bible. They just wrote because there was a reason to write for that moment. But God in his sovereign grace behind the scenes as he usually does work through them to write to their audience and yet with the goal of one day having this what what they wrote to be in a book for us right so this is the mystery of inspiration of the bible so as matthew wrote for his jewish audience what was his goal. His goal was to tell them, now that you are a believer in this Messiah, you have, you need a new life, new lifestyle. You have a new mission. You have a new family. All right. So that was his goal in writing this. So look at it now. You as a believer, you have a new life. You have a new mission and have a new family, and we can add a new future. All right. Now, of course, since it's written to the Jews, there are more Old Testament quotations in Matthew than the other Gospels. Because they were familiar with the Old Testament. No point when you write to Gentiles and quote a lot of the Old Testament, is it? What is it? So in this uh, Gospel of Matthew, you will see, it would say, then it was that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophets. You see that very often, that it is that it might be fulfilled. All these things, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophets. Okay, So that is how he links up what all the Old Testament prophecies had pointed to someone, someone of the seed of David, right? That would one day be their king and bring in, bring in a new kingdom. So, in other words, it's like all those prophecies finally focus on one person, spotlight that right on Jesus. Okay, so that's what it is. Many prophecies couldn't quite tie up. Finally, we see now we get it. What those prophecies are, they're fulfilled in this one life. Now, the first half of the book of Matthew speaks of his life in Galilee. Galilee is that part 
what we would call the countryside part of the kingdom of Israel. Very, very rugged. They were what people would consider the non-religious, uneducated, unimportant part of Israel. Then his second half of the book speaks of his time in around Jerusalem. That's where all the religious, educated, important people were. Now, the first half of the book takes about two and a half years of his ministry. We know Jesus had a three-year ministry. The first half of the book is the majority part of his ministry. In other words, he spent most of his time, two and a half years out of three years, in this uneducated, less religious part of Israel. I think that alone speaks a lot about our lifestyle, right? A lot of times we as Christians spend way, way too much time among the religious crowd, right? And Jesus wants us to know we should be with those people, shall we say the outsiders, right? Because that is how our new mission is, is to go to these people, right? So I think just by that, you have a slight idea of what you should be. This book is for us, believers. It's how we should live, right? Now, the book also, Matthew tries to emphasize three things about Jesus, right? Because when you see him, he looks like a man. The first thing he wanted to emphasize to the Jews is that he was, he was the king of the Jews. Secondly, he is the new Moses, right? Because to the Jews, Moses is big, big. And number three, he is God, right? So three things are being emphasized. He's not just a man. He's a king of the Jews. He looks like an ordinary guy walking around, but he's not, right? And so we see here, let's look at the first one, being king. Now, the book of Matthew begins, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Please have your Bibles ready. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right. So we see here very clearly he begins by the, telling you who this Jesus is. He's the son of David, the one we have been waiting for. Jews have always been waiting. You know, they had a glorious kingdom at the time of David. That it really fizzled out. And the dream of the Jews is a restoration of that kingdom under a son of David. An eternal kingdom, much better, much more glorious under the son of David. So it begins by that. And then if you look at Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 17, we will see here, So all the generations from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations, right? So the genealogy is put in such a way that it's put into three sections. Okay? Abraham to David. Then David 
to the exile, then the exile to Christ. Every one of them had 14. 14 is 7 times 2. 7 is a big deal number to the, to the Jewish mind. Numbers, you know, their letters had numbers. They, they very much do numbers, okay? 7, completion. Mm -hmm. 3, number of God. Mm. So 14, 3 times. Okay, okay, that's interesting. So for them, you might grab their attention a little bit. Okay, now you must remember Matthew begins with the birth of Jesus. The next book, for example, Mark doesn't even begin with the birth of Jesus. Straight starts with the baptism. Because for a king, birth is very important. If you're an honorary man, nobody talks about your birth. Right? The day an honorary man was born is no news. It's when he becomes somebody, then he... He comes into the news. But a prince, the day he's born, is news. Right? So you see here the emphasis is on his birth. While in Mark, he's not emphasized there as king. It's on his baptism, the beginning of his work. Right? There he is to be, son of man or servant, depends on how you look at Mark. Very different aspect was being focused in the Gospel of Mark. Then we see in the Matthew account, the wise men king. You're all familiar with the story, huh? Matthew 2, verse 11. The wise men came from the east to come and worship him. Wow. I mean, when a prince is born, when a new prince is born, people come and give their respects. And the three wise men bring, the wise men, I'm not sure there are three more, but they brought three gifts. Gold. Gold is always a symbol of royalty. Then they brought frankincense. Frankincense is something, incense, you burn it, and the incense, the fragrance, and the smoke rise up. That speaks of God. The third gift was myrrh. Myrrh was a spice used to embalm dead bodies. Kind of Weird, but the first gift was gold, his king, who is God, incense, who will die. All right, so the three already are very, very much telling us about this life of this new king. All right, now we also see a king when he's born is a very big deal, and we die is very, very big deal. All right, and in the Matthew account, Jesus' death is described very clearly. He wore a crown of thorns. So it's thorns. It was a crown. Right? In Matthew chapter 27, verse 29, you see he had a crown of thorns. He had a reed, a stick in his right hand. He was robed. Though they were mocking him, they didn't realize they were mocking him and also reminding the Jews crowned, scepter in his hand, robe, all right? And the Roman soldiers bowed down and said to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And then in Matthew 30, uh, 27, verse 37, we see there was a title over him when he was being crucified, and it said, Jesus, King of the Jews, that was nailed to the cross. 
Right? So all these were put down by Matthew, telling the readers, you know who this is, the one who died terribly on the cross, is your king. Now this was very important to the Jews because the Jews had a very different idea of the coming king. All right? You and I, we know the king came twice. He, he, he first time he came as a suffering servant, that's in Isaiah, but they ignored that. Second time, he will come as a conquering king. Right? First time on an ass or a donkey. Conquering kings don't come on an ass. Asses are not made for fighting. Second time, they'll come on a horse as a conquering king. Now, I want you to notice, note that while we know that Jesus is the suffering king, the Jews struggle. John the Baptist himself struggled. Let's turn to Matthew 11, chapter 2 and 3, all right? Matthew 11, chapter 2 and 3. Now, you must not forget that John the Baptist was the one that baptized Jesus. He saw, he heard from the heaven, he saw the dove descending on Jesus, he said, and he heard the voice saying, this is my beloved son. All right. I mean, John of all should know this is the Messiah. Of all people, he should. But when he watched Jesus for a long time, he began to wonder, is, did I hear right? Is this the king? He's so lowly. He just mixes with the poor. He's always with the crowds. He doesn't dress, he doesn't behave, he doesn't look like a king. And so poor John, when he was in prison, in Matthew 11, let's read what he struggles with here, Matthew 11, all right, and verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Imagine that. John, the prophet, sent to declare, proclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, is confused now. Alright, so I hope you understand why Jesus was so persecuted by the Jews. Because they had two different versions. Their version of the kings is totally different from our version of King Jesus who came 2,000 years ago, all right? Different version. Even Peter, look at Matthew 16, okay? Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Peter, his favorite disciple who was with him, saw every amazing thing about him, all right? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 22. When Jesus told him in verse 21, Let's look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Even Peter couldn't accept the fact that our king is going to be tortured, killed. What kind of king is that? 
Right? So here you must understand when Peter writes to tell people this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the King we are waiting for, it was a battle in their minds. Okay? So he writes a lot of these things like the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and many things to emphasize, the miracles to emphasize that this is not an ordinary man. This is the king we are looking for. And yet he dressed like an ordinary man. Okay? So number one, Matthew was working hard to get people to see this is the king. Okay? Who would come and suffer for us. Number two, Matthew tried to emphasize he, he this is also the new Moses. Right? Now in Matthew 2.15, we see that Jesus had to be brought to Egypt as a baby. And then after that, when Herod was dead, he could be brought back from Egypt. 2.15. I was in Egypt last year and I went to the church where they had a little like a grotto down there and he said, you know, Mary and baby Jesus lived here in Egypt. Now, why this thing about having to go to Egypt and come out? What, what's the point of this, this thing? Could they just run somewhere else? Moab or Ammon or Philistia? It's much easier, right? But they went. Joseph had to flee to Egypt and then later come out of Egypt. That's the picture of Moses coming out of Egypt. And then after he came out of Egypt, all right, and he grew up, Jesus was baptized. Now, honestly, you look at it. Why should Jesus be baptized? What's the point? He never had any sin. All right? Baptism is like you need a new life. All right? Washing of your sins. You come up from the water and you're born again in the new life. He, he, he never needed that. But the baptism is to show that just as Moses went through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus went into the Jordan and came out. And then after that, Jesus went 40 days into the wilderness, as Moses went 40 years in the wilderness. All these numbers clicked with the Jews, not to you probably. When they hear, they read this passage, they read Matthew, or they hear Matthew, oh, 40 days? Was it Moses 40 years? They all know this, okay? Oh, baptism. Didn't Moses go through the waters? And then after that, the first sermon he does is on the mount. And then the Jews always remember God's law was given on Mount Sinai. See, these things click. There are words that click in minds. We call buzzwords. It hits a bell in the mind of the Jew. And Jesus on the Mount preached the Sermon on the Mount. How to live as God and Mount Sinai had given them the law how to live. Except this time, Jesus is going to tell them. I will not only give you a new way to live, but I, as God did in Sinai, He gave you a new way to live, but I also give you a new heart so that you can live the way you should. All right? And that's why in Matthew 5, 17, you know, I just want you to watch. Go to Matthew 5, verse 17. I'm sorry I'm jumping around, but Matthew is a big book. We can't cover everything you know, like previously. Matthew chapter 5, all right? Verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but 
to fulfill them. You see, he's telling them, I am come to preserve the law. Just as Moses gave the law, I'm giving you a law. I'm not breaking laws by this. Okay? So I hope here you see that these things about going to Egypt and all this are not clearly taught in the other Gospels, but it's emphasized in Matthew to ring bells in Jewish minds. Now, of course, Moses got them out of slavery with the hope to go to the promised land. Jesus got them out of people out of sin with the hope to go to the kingdom of, to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Right? Big difference. But still, style of Moses. Okay? And the number three thing that Matthew wanted to emphasize is Jesus is God. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, please go with me. I'm sorry, I'm going right back again to Matthew 1. But we'll see that Jesus, right, in verse 23, the angel told, right, Mary, told Mary this baby, right, announce this baby. And verse 22 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It's very much still connected to the Old Testament. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now for the Jews, wow, that name, Emmanuel, they understood Hebrew men. Emmanuel means God with us. His name is God with us. Wow. Right? So, only Matthew records this of the gospel. So, what I hope you'll see is that Matthew's working very hard to get that mind to overcome the barrier that this one, this ordinary looking man living with very ordinary people is no less than the king no less than the new Moses, and no less than God with us. Whoa, all right? It's very hard to grasp you and I, you know. We'd be like, okay, I learned that in Sunday school, you know. <clears throat> but unlearning is much harder than learning, and the Jews had to unlearn, right? The, the king, the king is the conquering king to get rid of the Romans, get rid of the Romans, okay? And uh, John couldn't figure that out. Peter couldn't figure that out. Okay, so that's why he wrote this book. All right, the goal of this book, always understand what Matthew's trying to do. First, to get the Jews to understand Jesus is the king, the one we've been waiting for. And after that, the goal is that we will all be like Jesus and help others be like Jesus. All right? Because that's the end of the book. The goal is very clear. Many of the books in the Bible don't seem to have a nice ending. This one seems to have it. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We call it the Great Commission. We know it. We memorized it. That's the goal of this book. That you be a disciple and you make disciples of others who make disciples of others and this goes on. This is your new life. This is your new goal in life, right? Missions, disciple making. You see the word follow me five times in, all right, 
the, the uh, book of Matthew. Follow me. Don't just listen. Be my disciple, not my student. Big difference. Don't be a Bible student. Be a disciple of Jesus. Not know about him, but know and then live like him. And then help others be like him. Right? So the goal is very, very clear in this book. Now, the method, how did Jesus do it? This book is full of the works of Jesus, his life, works. How he reached out, how he immersed himself with people, how he was like them, how he touched them, how he fed them, how he healed them, how he helped them, full of works. It's not Bible student, not all right, let's go for our discipleship class. See you next week, discipleship class. See you next week, discipleship class, until we die. No, it's about going out, out, reaching, right? So it's about his works. And in as he did his works, he taught his word, right? And he taught with authority. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, let's just go there. These are just some key things. But we don't see all this. Then we're just reading a whole bundle of stuff that will make our head big and fat. Huh? Like many Christians. Huh? And our legs tiny and atrophied. Our hands paralyzed, right? Our hearts shrivel up. Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. This is after the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Matthew 7, 28, I'm sorry. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, a lot of Bible teaching today is taught by people who read another book and then teach you what they read in another book. Right? There's no authority in that teaching because it's not part of their life. They read their sermon, they read their lesson, because it's just something they read, put in their head, and then they discharge it. It's very different from Jesus who taught, and I hope when us, when we talk about the Word of God, it is out of our life. We don't speak as if we read it somewhere, we speak as if we know it. We speak with authority. I mean, if I know something, I can tell you, no, that's not the way to do it. Rather than, uh, no, I don't think that's the way to do it because I read that that doesn't work. It's very different. Right? And so today, the method of Christianity in general is basically word-based and word-based alone. I'm not, not agreeing against word-based. You need the word. I don't know about Jesus under the recent Bible. But word-based must produce works in life. Right? I always say it starts with the head. It moves the heart. And then it moves the hands and the feet. Otherwise, it's dead. It's a Dead Sea religion. It's like the Dead Sea in Israel. Waters just go in, go in, and finally... The sea becomes dead. We become spiritually dead. Right? So Jesus' method is very, very clear. If you read Matthew, you see works, 
word, works, word, works, word, all mixed up, one after another. It's not like word, I study for 20 years my Christianity, then I go out and do something for God. Hey, Pastor, I'm not ready. Let, let me get ready first, right? Let me learn more first. No, no, no. The best way to learn is to do. You want to learn cooking? Learn, do. Do, learn. Learn, do. Do, learn. All the time, like that. It's all mixed, right? Very different from school education, where you spend like 20 years going to school, not lifting a finger to do anything. And then after 20 years, you graduate to do something, right? Life skills in Christianity are not like that. All right. So we see now, if you look at the book of Matthew, and I'm not going to dissect it, it's, it's too diverse. A lot of people come up with very beautiful classifications and say, you know, this verse, I, I think it's like trying to put the book of Matthew into boxes, you know. We like things in boxes and because it's neat and tidy, you know, the five points of Calvinism or whatever. You, you just can't do that. But you can roughly see some kind of structure and I believe there are basically five major sermons on five major topics in Matthew. Okay? And you can disagree with me because it's not hard and fast. They're not thick lines drawn. Five again is like the Pentateuch or the Torah. The Jews always believe the word of God came. Five books. Genesis to Deuteronomy. Even the Psalms seem to have like sections of five. And Matthew tends to write it in that style. It looks like five major sermons of Jesus are recorded. Okay, The first, the one we all are familiar with, Sermon on the Mount, roughly chapter 5 to 7, chapter 5 to chapter 7, sorry, it basically describes kingdom lifestyle. In other words, you are a believer now, this it should be your lifestyle. Okay? And honestly, it's an upside down lifestyle. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted. It's like, ah, that's weird, right? And that is the lifestyle of a Christian. It's pretty much an upside down lifestyle, right? Who's, who is the one who is great? The one who is a servant, right? How do you be rich in the kingdom of heaven? By giving. It's like, what? What the world is going on here? When someone slaps you, you turn the other cheek. It's like, what? How come? All right? And we hear in the Sermon of the Mount, you have heard five times, but I say unto you. You have heard, but I say unto you. In other words, our lifestyle is truly to be like an upside down lifestyle. In other words, like Jesus' lifestyle, the king who went to the cross. Normally, a king wants people to die for him. This king went to die for people. Now, now that's not the normal way. Normal king wants to be born in a beautiful palace. He was born in a manger. A king wants to live in a palace. He grew up in a carpenter's house. A king wants to have all kinds of residences, but Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? Important men always spend time, big men, 
spend time with big men. He spent time with lowly men. They like to, kings like to be in big functions. He avoided Jerusalem. You know, it's totally different. Kings dress different. He dressed exactly like others. And that when the, the high priest wanted to arrest him, they had to pay Judas 30 pieces of silver to identify Jesus. That to me is the most bizarre comment I can statement in the Bible. You mean you gotta pay a guy 30 pieces of silver to identify Jesus? You mean you can't identify Jesus after three years of public ministry? Your troops, your soldiers, your high priest, your priests cannot identify him? What's wrong? You know why he looks so normal? I mean, if anybody wanted to arrest a president, you don't have to pay anyone say, hey, please tell me which one's the president. He's the one walking in the front. The bodyguards around him. He dresses differently. Everybody looks up to him. I mean, you don't need anybody to say that's the king. Right? But for Jesus, after three years, every day, exposing himself, people would say, hey, Judas, which one is Jesus? Huh? I don't want to arrest Peter by mistake. Right? So this is really the upside-down lifestyle. And today, we don't have upside-down lifestyle. Most of the, the, the pastors are the big guys. They walk around with bodyguards. They like all kinds of, you know, uh, fancy houses and live fancy lifestyle. And they want everyone to call them big titles, doctor this and, uh, you know, the right reverend and, you know, uh, whatever. <clears throat> My goodness. Sermon on the Mount. They haven't read it. Number two, second sermon, probably around chapter 9 and 10, you're familiar. Chapter 9 is the harvest truly is plentiful. Chapter 9 verse 37, the harvest truly is plentiful. And then chapter 10, Jesus sent out the disciples. Right? <laughs> okay, so you see, Kingdom lifestyle, first of kingdom mission, reaching out. You know, I mean, Christianity today is going in, going in, go to church. What's your goal as you become a Christian? Be faithful in church. Oh, isn't that so noble? Isn't that so, so spiritual? No, it's not. It's an escapist lifestyle, right? We are to be salt and light in the world not bringing all the light into one building and each of us lighting each other up, okay? And dazzling each other with our brilliance, our arguments, and our scholarship. Third sermon is found in chapter 13. Of course, it's more than chapter 13, but chapter 13, you see, kingdom growth. In chapter 13, there's a whole bunch of parables. And Jesus always taught in parables. Chapter 13, verse 34 says, Jesus never taught anything without parables. Today, we never teach without outlines, alliterations, numbers, charts, OHP, overhead PowerPoints. No. Teach with stories, simple stories. The brain is still wired the same way. We don't have a different brain from the first brain that Adam had. 
our brains wired for stories. That's why the Bible is 70% stories. We remember stories, even from our childhood. We don't remember numbers, alliterations. Okay? So he taught the parables about kingdom growth. For example, parable of the good soil. You sow, sometimes something happens, hundredfold, sometimes nothing happens. It's okay, that's part of kingdom growth. Wheat and tares, parable of the wheat and the tares, chapter 13. When you sow, you have two types coming up. It's okay, it's part of life. Don't get angry and have upset. Mustard seed parable, throw a little seed. You never know how one day it can be a huge, huge tree. Bless lots of people with that one seed you threw. Pearl of great price. In this parable, it's like finding a pearl of great. When you found a girl pearl of great, you sell everything else just for that. When you found the joy of sharing the gospel and the disciple-making lifestyle, you throw everything away. The rest is useless, pointless. It's not worth anything. One day you leave everything behind. The pearl of great price. Right? Then the last pair was a net. Cast a net, catch all kinds of good fish, bad fish. On the last day, angels, God will sort it out. Don't worry about it. Okay? So, the third sermon was about kingdom growth. The fourth sermon is to me, found in chapter 18, kingdom relationships. See, now we're in a new family. We live in a new spiritual family and we need to have relationships. And then in Matthew 18, it says, if a brother has sinned against you, go and settle it quickly. Don't keep grudges. And then also in this uh, Matthew 18, it talks about how to forgive, how God forgive us. Therefore, we should forgive others. All right. Now, you cannot live in any kind of relationship, whether it's a biological family or spiritual family if you don't settle and you don't forgive. Almost all the time things are problems in a community or a family it's because they haven't understood how to go up to that person, settle it and then forgive as Christ forgave us. And then lastly the fifth sermon is on the future of the kingdom, sign of the end times, which I won't go into, except to say the Jews struggle with this. See, the Jewish mind, the future kingdom, right, was holy future. That means it, it the present life, then the future kingdom comes to separate things. For us Christians, the kingdom has come already, but the present life still exists. The present evil world is still here, and the kingdom is still already here. I'm in the kingdom. I'm a child of God already. I'm enjoying many things of the kingdom, and yet I'm being harassed by many things of this present evil world. It's an overlap. Which for the Jewish mind, they couldn't figure that out. How come if the king is here and then the world's there? How come the Romans are still oppressing us? 
What's he talking about the new kingdom? I still see the Romans here. I still see this, this corruption here. Right? There is an overlap. Because the kingdom is inaugurated, I repeat that, inaugurated or started, but not consummated, not completed. That's all. All right? And there is an overlap. But in the Jewish mind, it's either this present evil world, then it's erased and the future kingdom comes. And so they were totally confused. Right? For us, we know. I still have my own nature, but I have a new nature. The world is still stinks outside, but there's so much peace and joy inside. Right? I'm enjoying the kingdom already. I'm not waiting for heaven. I'm enjoying peace and joy in my heart already. I have a taste of it. It's inaugurated, but not completed, not consummated. Alright? So these are the five kind of major themes of sermons that is in the book of Matthew. So I hope as you read through it, you will see these things. Right? Again, let me say the goal of Matthew. Because if you lose the goal, then you lose it all. As a believer, you and me, we don't struggle with about, oh, Jesus, is he really the king? We have a abstract of that. All right? Is he really the son of David? Yes, I know that. Right? But what is the biggest struggle? It is in Matthew chapter 28. And we call it the Great Commission. I call it the King's Commandment. The King has come. Kings give commandments. What is the king's commandment? Make disciples. Matthew chapter 28. So let's look at Matthew 28 as we end our study on the book of Matthew. And I'm sure all of you know this. You probably memorized this. And But let's look at it again. Matthew 28 verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What can he say that? He's a king. Alright? He's the king. He can say that. Only a king can say all authority in heaven and on earth. Right? Nobody else can say. Only King Jesus can talk this way. Anybody else talk this way? Bless you. All authority in heaven given to you. Are you joking? Alright? On earth, all authority on earth given to you? Are you joking? Right? Only the king can do that. That's right. You either accept Jesus as king, God with us, or he's a liar, he's insane. Right? Either one of the two. You can't take between. Right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always unto the end of the age. You will see several verbs here. Go is a verb. Make disciples. Make is a verb. Baptize is a verb. Right? Teach is a verb. To observe is a verb. Right? So there's so many things to do, right? No! A lot of verbs there, but in the Greek, there's one imperative verb. Imperative means compulsory. Focus on that verb. The rest help you to focus on that verb. What's that verb? Make disciples. The imperative verb is go. Go for what? 
make disciples. Teach for what? Make disciples. Baptize for what? Make disciples. Right? So what is the goal of Matthew reading this entire 28 chapters? I can tell you the vast majority of Christians read this entire 28 chapters and don't make disciples. They go to church. They go to Bible studies for a lifetime and make no disciples. Maybe one, maybe their kid. All right, and even that, not, not likely. They never really focus on it. They made the kid go to Bible Sunday school. They never look and say, follow me, son. My life, my deeds, not Sunday school teacher's words. Papa's life, Papa's deeds. Follow that. All right? Now look at the last phrase there. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Only God can say that. Only Emmanuel can say that. God with us. So do you see here the king's command? The king commands you. It's not a great commission. It sounds weird and great commission. It's a king's commandment to make disciples. And we have, many of us have ignored the commandment. And you will never have Christ. You never know the reality of God till you're making disciples. That's when you know he is with you. For many Christians, God is up there somewhere. Maybe there in the church. But with you, they cannot really say, Lo, behold, he is with me. Why? They're not making disciples. They're just doing their thing. Why should God spend time with you when you're doing your things? So you can have more girlfriends and have more uh, fancy uh, taste in your clothing, you know, go shopping with you. Don't think that's what God really meant by this verse, right? But you feel the reality of God's presence when you make disciples. So I hope this book helps you to connect, all right? The OT to the NT. And now, as you see the focus, there is a life here we are seeing. As we read this life, what's the goal of reading this life? So that you can be like it. We're not safe just to escape hell. We're safe to escape hell to be like Christ and to help others be like Christ and to help others make others be like Christ. God bless you.